Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. And today's topic is one that I know many of us wrestle with, that of chronic pain, chronic headaches, chronic stomach aches, and just chronic pain of all sorts. And I'm bringing to you a really interesting speaker who has spent a lot of time thinking about this and reaching out to these patients. Dr. Michael Lenz is a practicing physician in Delafield, Waukesha County, Wisconsin. He is board certified in pediatrics and internal medicine and sees patients through newborn to adulthood. He is also a diplomat of the Board of Lifestyle Medicine and a diplomat of the Board of Clinical Lipidology. Dr. Lentz also received a T. Colin Campbell plant-based nutrition certificate. He graduated from the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee and completed his residency at the Virginia Commonwealth University Hospitals in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Lentz has helped hundreds of patients suffering from fibromyalgia-like pain. He is committed to educating, inspiring, and equipping patients to walk through this battle triumphantly. His interest in fibromyalgia started with mental health. Caring for both has helped him better understand complex problems, including fibromyalgia and other chronic pain conditions like migraines, chronic abdominal pain, dysmenorrhea, irritable bowel, and POTS. His goal is to inform and inspire and equip those with fibromyalgia, their loved ones, and physicians who have had little training and experience caring for those with complex pain conditions. All involved are typically frustrated, in despair, and disillusioned by the healthcare system and vulnerable to alternative care that is not evidence-based and typically not covered by insurance. Despite this, it is one of the most rewarding groups of patients he works with. He has written a book and has a podcast, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, and I'll put links to both in the show notes. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael Lenz. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, thank you for making time. I know you're a really busy guy and seeing lots of patients and doing all the things, so I appreciate you making time. You know, before we get started, just... How did you decide to be a doctor and how did you get into this field of chronic pain? So uh, as far as deciding to be a doctor, I always liked science. I always liked problem solving and wanted to help people. My mom was a nurse and very caring, good role model. And of course, wanted, as most doctors, be able to use science a little more and really understand why and how things work. I've always had that curiosity as probably most doctors wanting to know well, what's the in-depth understanding of something? So I went to med school and then I went to pick what kind of program I wanted to get into. And I thought I'd be in family practice, but I heard of this MedPeds program. And I thought, well, that's great because I really like in-depth understanding and I'm not 
probably going to be an OB. I'm just nothing against it, but I'm a guy and I just didn't have that inspiration to spend six months of three years on that. And I love taking care of kids and love taking care of adults. And so that brought me to internal medicine and peds. And why did I stay in primary care? Because I didn't want to say no to every other organ system. Because kind of like getting married, when you get married, you say no to every other woman in the world. No. <laughs> heard that before. <laughs> and when you, and that's a, it's, you say yes to her, but in one sense, you're saying no to everybody else. And when you specialize, in a sense, you're saying no to every other organ system in one sense, because you're, you're honed down and your expertise becomes great, but then also other areas in organ systems. And I just love that, what we now would call that mind-body-spirit approach to understanding all of the struggles go together. And for problems like we'll be talking today with fibromyalgia and related problems, it intersects so many different organ systems. And and then being a pediatrician and an internist, I get to see the age spectrum or the, the continuum, I should say, and the life, uh, how that affects people at different ages. And it's really been just an enjoyment. And how did I get into the chronic pain or fibromyalgia side of things is I always came in with the pretty solid premise that I didn't believe in hypochondriacs. I know there were people who might be trying to maybe get opioid medications. And I was one of the first ones working with adults as, as well as kids who recognized that Oxycontin was addicting and, and was a problem. And I stopped prescribing that very early, recognizing before many. But at the same time, I didn't understand. I still wanted to help, not to abandon any patients, but that probably wasn't the right approach. And then I just always wondered, I heard that, you know, some of these central pain processing problems, you heard a little bit here and there. Um, I remember being on uh, moonlighting at a peds rehab hospital and reading about a little bit of this thing called fibromyalgia in the late 90s, but there was so little back then of what was understood. And then you'd hear it, read a little bit about IBS and you read a little about migraines. You, I had a conference of the case of the week was uh, cyclical vomiting syndrome, which I didn't realize was all part of that same continuum. And I'd see people with these unexplained pains. And then I started seeing family histories, just observing, you know, somebody comes in and they're having abdominal pain and migraines and their mom said, well, I had terrible IBS or dad has bad migraines. And you start to see, hmm, there's probably a connection. And then kind of always feel that this population is somebody that is often the least favorite patient on a pediatrician's or internal medicine or family practice schedule. They just don't know what to do. It's highly frustrating for the doctors. It's highly frustrating for patients themselves and their families. And I wanted to really help people who were struggling with this and started to realize there's some themes and some common patterns and then applying that and using a comprehensive approach, looking at blending the best of what I like to say is medical management and lifestyle medicine to help people. And the other thing is I've always been interested in sports, playing in sports, helped coach some of my kids' sports when until they got to high school. And I always was just trying to be positive with kids, you know, knowing that this kid may never even play in high school, but we're going to encourage them wherever they're at. And there's a lot of that encouragement to help people and coach them along. And that's, I think, one of the beauties of working in this. There is that a lot of encouragement and coaching, but also a challenge. But I feel that they deserve those. And one of the recent podcasts, I says for the least of these and faith has a part approach for me as well, just wanting to care for those who often are looked and, and dismissed and not validated. So, so that's a quick summary, hopefully for you. Good. I think we just 
summed up the podcast. <laughs> no, I I love what you said about the least favorite, and yet that is the ones that you've drawn to you, you know, and that, I mean, your patients must be so lucky and so relieved to find somebody that's kind of like, I'm happy you're here. I, you know, I can help you with this, or I, let's talk about it. And that must be just a huge relief. I would think for them. You know, I, I like to say many times I'm seeing somebody if they've been to many doctors before and, and often they've given up hope or they've been down so many alternative medicine routes. And sometimes a family is split. Is this person, this teenage daughter with migraines that keeps missing school? Are they just faking it or is it real? And they are often is being torn. Some of the, you know, is there attention seeking that's inappropriate? And to say, hey, this is something that's completely real. Trying to pick up the the book that I wrote called Conquering Your Fibromyalgia. And the subtitle is Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. The long title, which was too long for a title, was For Real Pain, Real Fatigue, and Real Brain Fog. But it was too long of a title. But to saying that this is completely real, what you're experiencing is completely real. And there's hope. There isn't going to be this quick one little thing that we're going to do. And you're going to take this antibiotic for your UTI, or you're going to get the appendix removed and you'll be relieved very quickly, like we often enjoy. Those are satisfying diseases to treat when somebody gets better. But it's also satisfying when somebody's been struggling the longest to help them get better. And often, almost like an equation, the longer they've had struggles, the more just thankfulness that they have that when they get better. Part of the comprehensive approach is actually convincing people that they have gotten better. I got kicked off a Facebook group when I said, you know, a lot of people, these probably more some of the younger adults and older uh, middle-aged adults who had fibro. And I said, boy, a lot of people here, it seems like are talking about this, like it's a stage four metastatic cancer and we're just doing palliative care, like nobody's ever going to get better. And I said, my patients get better. They lessen their symptoms. There's a lot of different factors beyond, and, and not everybody, you know, maybe an extremely high stress situation. You might go from extreme levels to moderate, and maybe over time might be able to get it down, but to at least improve their symptoms and validate their story that you're not the only one. A kind of a saying that I've heard over the years after getting to know a patient who's going through these is, you know, you're not that special. And of course, you're so special, but you're not the only person. And it might feel like you're a lonely person. I think they might have gone to many doctor's offices where the doctor sort of puts their head down and probably mumbles a few things and says, well, I don't know. What do you think? Maybe you should go back to ortho again or I don't know, neurology or I don't, you know, and they kind of mumble a couple things and kind of put their head down and kind of hope they go away because they honestly oh. don't know what to do. Oh, I mean, I can totally relate to that. I mean, I think all of us have you know, and I'm speaking from the pediatric world, you know, kids with chronic headache, chronic stomach ache, and, you know, you've done workups and you've done, you know, you've ruled out, you know, what everybody fears, cancer, you know, you've ruled that out and, and you just can't, you feel like you can't get them any relief. And so it becomes frustrating. I think you said that earlier that I'm trying, I just was at a conference and heard someone say, improved function does not necessarily equal no pain that it's sometimes you can manage it, improve it, but it may not necessarily be completely gone. And yet people can improve function. I thought that was kind of an interesting, you know, the idea that there's going to be a miraculous cure maybe is not necessarily the goalpost. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think 
one of the tools that I use is not just, I didn't invent this, it's called the fibromyalgia impact questionnaire. There's a revised form and it talks about a lot of these from zero to 10, how difficult is it to do something? And it's probably more for your older middle school, the adolescent pediatric patients, but it gives me a baseline of function. And so when you get somebody who says it was a nine out of 10 to brush or comb their hair, um, to be able to sit in a chair for 45 minutes, and then they come back and let's say the score goes from zero to 100 and, and they're ex- they're really struggling when I first see them and I say their score might be 80. And you come back and their score is 60 and you made an intervention, I'd say, and they go, I don't know if I got any better. And like, well, you made some improvement. Remember before it was a nine out of 10 to do this and, and now it's a five or a six. Okay. And before you said you were overwhelmed all the time, a 10 out of 10, and now you're only overwhelmed a five out of 10. And so part of that is to return down the volume and give an expectation of where we're at. You didn't get here overnight and how we can then gradually move in the right direction and knowing that we can. And yet it's a lot of factors. And I think actually when I have gotten into the fibromyalgia speaking on this with the podcast in the book. When I take to people who are advocates in this space, they really appreciate the fact that I'm not somebody who has this special supplement that I'm trying to sell and this special quick fix because the ones who know who are advocates and trying to get research dollars and education recognize that this is a multimodal, multifaceted approach. There is that comprehensive care. And right now there is really no specialist that really is the expert in this. There may be people in a GI department who one of them has a special interest in this area, but they are not psychiatrists. Um, There might be a psychiatrist who's interested in things, but they're not the neurologist and vice versa. So there's elements. And as somebody who likes mental health, and that's why I found your podcast, I love that title, Pediatric Meltdown, (laughs) because that overlaps so much with the chronic pain, fibromyalgia type problems because they themselves are struggling and, and feeling like they're melting down and they're really struggling. And how do we find hope? And often if you have a motivated uh, pediatrician who's listening, who wants to learn more, it can start to connect the dots. <laughs> I heard some podcast recently, it was from the movie, The Matrix, and do you want the blue pill or the white pill? And I, I have to go back and look at it. But one of them was, you want to really see what's going on, see how all the dots are connected. And I think that's what I try to do. And when people see a lot of these comorbidities that are connected, they're like, oh, reconsider some of the things that you were taught. You know, one of them is a classic thing called growing pain. I get a chance to work with residents and for years, patients who often is their first chronic pain symptom, maybe starting in elementary school, And it's been dismissed because when I was in residency, oh, that's just growing pains. It's not a real thing, really. It's just a growing pain. And then we realized, well, there's growth plate problems when you're running, but that should feel better when you're sleeping, when you have problems at night, when your legs get uncomfortable and you can't sleep. Maybe that's actually restless leg syndrome and recognizing and treating that. But the problem is most pediatricians haven't been taught that. They didn't have a doctor in their training and would take that as a big stretch to consider that and even treating it themselves, they might say, I don't feel comfortable treating that. So I am going to refer to a sleep center who might get on this expensive path of sleep studies and all these other things when it was uh, not necessary. Similar to how when I treated my first adult with ADHD, I treated kids, but I'm like, 
well, they kind of told us you grow out of it, but this is the dad who said he was just like Johnny and he's being treated for anxiety that's not really responding. You had to take that first for your first patient that you treated on your own and probably in your lifetime too, your first patient you treated with an SSRI, you know, that you may have never had. Oh, you, sure. you, you go, okay, I don't know if I should do this, but oh, I'll take I'll take a chance. And Oh yeah, I'm old enough. I remember when Prozac came <laughs> out, so... So, yes, I, I remember those days. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of this pain continuum. I mean, you've referred to fibromyalgia, some, you know, chronic headache, gut ache. Um, are these things related? Is there like a common pathway to this? Can you talk about, you know, what do you mean by fibromyalgia? Yeah. So fibromyalgia is a syndrome. like irritable bowel, migraines, all of these have a central pain processing problem. It's how the brain, brainstem and spinal cord process stimuli. And then along with it, it's not just pain, but there also is typically a lot of fatigue associated with it. And for many people, the fatigue is more of a problem than the pain. And also there's a lot of the brain fog, uh, cognitive impairment. And for most pediatricians, when you hear somebody who says, I have a hard time focusing, short-term memory, staying on task, forgetting things. And I go down the list. It's like, well, what does that sound like? Well, to a pediatrician, you're like, well, that also might be ADHD. But to an adult doctor, they're like, uh, I don't know, they're getting early Alzheimer's and it's, they're going through menopause. And it's like, no, because they don't even think about it. So it's being on both ends, how the brain processes pain. So under that umbrella are regional pain syndromes. And typically, this is something that, I don't want to say progress like a cancer that's spreading, but often there may be, might have been for some, it might have started as colic, which many feel is that that's on that central pain processing syndrome. I remember years ago uh, in residency and early training, when you give a talk for expectant parents, I'd say, well, colic is that time where babies are extra sensitive and they have a hard time self-soothing, but don't worry, it gets better. Oh, that sounds like a post-migraine where the baby has a hard time, rela or kid or adult has a hard time relaxing. They hard to get comfortable if they have the light has to be just right and the noise has to be just right and gradually gets better. So when it comes to the regional pain syndromes, it might then show up as chronic abdominal pain, going to the school nurse. And sometimes it appears that they're trying to get out of class. Well, maybe they also have comorbid ADHD and anxiety or less that go overlap. And then they might be painful periods out of proportion to that. Many of my uh, patients who had that when they were kids and I see them adults, they go, this is the first time in my life, Dr. Lenz, I don't have pain with my period. I just thought it was completely normal to be just doubled over for two to three days with pain. That was so severe until now I'm getting treated. I didn't know that wasn't normal. And for often for people who are going through this, it, they've been told, oh, you're fine. You're fine. After a while, they just normalize. They have to. There's no other choice. It's just a survival. So it's underlying commonality is that central pain processing. Why one person gets IBS and another person gets migraines, it's hard to say. It seems like in kids before puberty are more likely to have that abdominal symptoms. And then it seems after that starts to transform into a more headache symptoms. But I had a recent patient of mine who had seen the internal medicine doctor when I was off or overflow for a day. And it was a young man who has had migraines and cyclovomining uh, type problems in the past. She saw him, had abdominal pain, never has seen cyclical vomiting form, didn't know what to do, 
was like talking about getting a CT. He was in so much pain, so severe. And then she's next, when I saw her next day, I saw this patient. He's like 22. I didn't know what to do. And what do you think? I'm like, oh, that was cyclical vomiting. He was having an abdominal migraine. Yeah, he stopped taking his RLS meds and he's been under stress because his girlfriend's having some suicidal thoughts and he's not been sleeping well lately. Oh, she's like, oh, okay. But to her, she never had ever taken care of that in her clinic because that is not, she's never heard of that. She doesn't manage that before. So the, it's just interesting how those symptoms overlap, you know, that can persist into young adulthood, into the 20s. It, It starts to, change more into headaches, but it's all very fascinating. And then when you take a family history, as I was talking earlier, um, you're often finding that IBS, the migraines. And often, you know, I was talking with uh, Zach, who's uh, my resident doing his outpatient rotations with me. He's with MedPeds rotation and he's doing the GI rotation at Children's Hospital. And he's like, now that he's been under my training for three years or so plus years of his four-year residency, that well, I'll see this person, and then he's taking an informed history. Well, is there any family history of fibromyalgia? Or I, and mom's like, well, I have fibromyalgia. Well, as a pediatrician, we might not be asking those pointed questions. And then it might be, well, this girl who actually was diagnosed on the GI service as having cyclical vomiting, she also meets criteria for fibromyalgia. But the GI doctors didn't ask about neck pain, back pain, hip pain, all the other pains, because, well, the most important pain right now is what is in our silo, what is in our specialty. Right, right, right. Which is just what they're in the hospital for. So, Well, I want to walk it back a little bit to when we start seeing these patients, like to the beginning. I mean, I think, and and you can tell me what your process is like. You know, I think about the kiddo that comes in with, you know, chronic abdominal pain. Maybe they have some, maybe they have some loose stools, um, maybe some food sensitivity no weight loss, but we're, you know, in our heads, we're processing, could this be celiac? Is, is this a post, Mm -hmm. you know, post viral, you know, the gut just needs to repair itself. So knowing what you know and what you've seen, how do you think about these patients that may be in that kind of chronic pain and, and what, how you think about evaluating them and working them up? I mean, how far do you go? Because it's easy to go down the path of all the things, you know, the MRIs and the CTs and blood work and scopes. And so when you, it starts with taking a great history, right? And I encourage if somebody has chronic pain and sometimes I get referrals from a family who's like, can I have you see my daughter? And I said, that's great. Hey, in the meantime, can you just write down her whole history? Like starting in the beginning when she first started having what all tests, what all the workup has had, because literally taking that history often by the time they might be seeing you. Now, if you're seeing them one month into this, well, it's hard to know. But if we're talking, this has been months of vacillating pain and, you know, the Rome criteria, unexpected weight loss and bloody stools that we can use often in the adult world to make sure it's not something terrible. You know, in adults, we're worried not colon cancer. And in kids, it's more the Crohn's disease and colitis, but they're not having the bloody stools. You might as we often do with just central pain and fibromyalgia workups is a CBC, maybe a sed rate or C-reactive protein, a comprehensive metabolic panel to make sure that there isn't something jumping out. And then the careful physical exam, but the physical exam may show tenderness because they have a hypersensitive 
nervous system. They're reporting pain just with simple touch. And then I'm trying to also take a history of what else is going on besides this abdominal pain, you know, asking about other, the you know, going through, do you have any other pain in neck, back? What's your sleep schedule like? What are you eating? What's your stress? Where's your, where are you in sports? Uh, for example, you take a history where it starts in the fall. This time of the year is a big time of the year where you start seeing kids coming into the clinic and they're having headaches, migraines that seem to pop up. Well, why? Well, in the summer they were playing. They got out. They weren't having homework to do. They weren't under maybe the stress. They had a schedule that gave them nine and a half, 10 hours of sleep because they could sleep in longer. And recognizing that the, the simple history of what are the potential triggers and looking at the sleep schedule even within a week. When does the headache occur? When does the abdominal pain occur? And then taking that close family history. So assuming that it's a chronic, non-inflammatory, non-infectious condition, and whether or not you do a celiac panel or not, I mean, sometimes you might have abdominal pain and it depends on how strong of a family history there is. And you can have a lot of comorbidity, like 40% of kids who have Crohn's disease also have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. So we have to make sure that we don't exclude comorbid diagnoses, right? Those are often present. And often we can start to see, we see a connection between some of these patterns, what might be going on. And it can be relieving if they go, oh, that's right. It wasn't as bad over the summer. I only had one migraine a month. Oh, so there is something that is malleable that we can have an impact on this. Or sometimes I've had one girl, patient of mine who I've seen over the years before, during, and now after puberty, that she would be fine when she was doing two sports, which may seem silly because it might be more stress, but she was wearing herself out. She had underlying restless leg syndrome. So when she got enough exercise, she slept well. But when she was in the off seasons, when soccer was over and swim was over and there was that gap in between. I have a podcast called Weather Induced Migraine. And here in Wisconsin, there was a boy. They did basketball. And then after Christmas, there was no sports. It's cold outside here in Wisconsin. And the parents never thought we need to go to the gym with him and play. And he wasn't exercising. He, he needed a certain amount of exercise to get good sleep. Turned out he had some underlying RLS that for many kids, often if they get enough steps or activity units in, they can, quote, wear their body out that they sleep well. Well, if they stopped playing and they're not aware that they need to be active, I kind of use the analogy as uh, not taking this in a bad way, but like dogs, there are some dogs that can walk around the block once and that's enough for them. And then there are dogs who want to run nine miles a day to feel normal. Well, if you don't know you're a dog that needs six miles a day, quote, of activity and you're sitting around, you're like, why can't I sleep? I got all this energy bound up. Oh, and then also on the spectrum is recognizing the role of food. Um, There are studies that show at least it's so hard to get big volume studies done in nutrition because hard with compliance, but showing that eating a healthy whole food plant-based diet with lots of fiber, as, as you just were telling me off. Uh, before we started with the gut-brain axis. And what we're learning is that the food has an impact. So when you eat a diet that's high in natural fibers, meaning just from plant foods that are unprocessed, that the gut bacteria digest that. And there are these short-chain fatty acids like propionic acid that are released. And when you look at some interesting studies they've done, as we know with IBS, you'll put a balloon in the colon, put a pressure sensor, inflate it, 
People with IBS report pain at about half the amount of pressure as those who don't have IBS. You put an enema of propionic acid in, let it absorb, you put in the balloon, and now they can tolerate a much higher, almost normal pressure. So it acts kind of like as, as a natural analgesic. We also know that there are uh, bacteria that digest the, the fiber that release these precursors to serotonin and dopamine and other healthy neurotransmitters. So that not only affects our local gut brain, but it also gets absorbed into our body. So we generally feel better and have more energy as opposed to eating the typical calorie dense diet. So we talk about the role of food and exercise is important in recognizing that. And then if they do have some comorbid issues that often occur, like the more severe somebody has chronic pain, the higher the likelihood. When I say chronic pain issues, I mean, of course, like irritable bowel and severe migraines, you know, you're getting three a week that are severe, missing many days of school. Then you start getting into much higher likelihood of having other comorbidities that aren't going to be modified by modified just by lifestyle alone. They may have ADHD or like we talked about restless leg going on. And that treating that actually has been shown to reduce symptoms significantly, not only just in studies, but also in anecdotal practice. So recognizing those. And then sometimes that's so important to be done because if you can't sleep, you don't have the energy to exercise, which means you get caught into this vicious circle where you never can get out of it. So if you can have this, and, and part of why I wrote the book was to see how all of these dots are connected. Because I can't explain that in a 20-minute visit. And then I realized, now I'll say some of this with my patients. I'm like, all right, listen to the podcast and come back and we'll talk more in two weeks because I can't cover. But here's some information because you can't cover all of this. You know, I, I don't have anybody who says, right. before I start Bactrim for this UTI, can you give me some six six hours of podcast before I'm going to, you're like, okay, everybody's had a UTI. I trust the antibiotics are going to work. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of education. There's a lot, I mean, the first thing you start with is validation. Obviously, you know, this pain is real. You're experiencing pain and you're not dismissing it as you're making it up or malingering or, you know, doing it on purpose. And you're offering some hope. I, I haven't heard you talk about any medications. So there's a lot of other things to do first. And, you know, I think this is true. I don't know, the longer in my career that I worked with kids with mental health concerns, the less medication I felt was I, not that, I mean, there's a place for medication, but there were so many other things. And so it's kind of all those things first, or maybe at the same time, depending on the situation, that there may be a lot of benefit just in doing those things. And, you know, so that that's what I've heard you say that, you know, there's all these, I mean, it's a, it's a, a big amount of things that you can offer. Exactly. And using a, another sports analogy here, it's like baseball. Uh, most of the interventions are singles occasionally doubles. We never get triples and home runs. You might get 25% improvement with this intervention. Um, you might get 50% with this stress management, all of these other things, exercise, all of these have to work together. But there also are those other stressors that are going on in life, the support or lack of support or living in an environment where sometimes one of the parents may have untreated chronic pain syndromes that they're self-medicating with a substance, which and also erratic but grown-up erratic behavior that is, just blossoms in, in, a, in a negative way. And now uh, 
you don't have that stability at home in that high stress environment or where there's a divorce. So there, there's stress of trying to go between two households and different schedules. But I, I had a episode I did earlier on my podcast, just the power of education. And they, there was a study in Spain where they had, it was for fibromyalgia, but they had seven two-hour teaching sessions on fibromyalgia, talking about the central nervous system, how the brain becomes hypersensitive and different factors. And they showed about 25% reduction in their symptom. So that is just by learning about this. A lot of times people who are going through this, and this is unintentional, but the more doctors you see, the more frustrated the patient gets. Every time you refer somebody and they don't get better, they trust goes down so much and they get disillusioned that they will ever get better and that there's any hope, real hope that they can get better. And they often tend to catastrophize. They think that I'm not going to get better. This is the worst case. And there are just scales you can do, catastrophization scales that overlap with that that hypervigilant brain that not only is hypersensitive to feeling things, but they're also emotionally hypervigilant, which some people will say, well, uh, gaslighting, you know, uh, and, and it's like, well, no, you do have a hypersensitive nervous system. That's not saying that you're making this up, but how you process things is much more intensely. And then to recognize that happens to a lot of people. Like you say, that validation, I've had many people who've read my book who've been, especially for years, you know, I don't have a eight-year-old come in with, I've had chronic abdominal pain for six months and you're the first doctor who could figure it out. But when you multiply that times another 40 years from six to age 46, they read the book and I have a lot of share a lot of stories of patients and they often cry because that's me. I've been all Mm -hmm. of these doctors. I've been through that in a in one of the chapters in my book is called pediatrics. And I say, you know, your fibromyalgia didn't start at age 46 when you started going through menopause. It likely started years ago and probably likely in childhood to some degree, but it was in the normal range 40 years ago. Oh, yeah, I got bad periods. I had a recent patient of mine who had now she's 46 and I'm seeing her 17 year old daughter, interestingly. And I saw that she was having all these recurrent abdominal pain, migraines, and was really struggling. Very intelligent girl and had the central pain syndrome, you know, of the fibromyalgia and migraine overlapping symptoms. But her mom, I said, well, read more about this. She also had underlying ADHD in combination. And we talked about eating more plant-based and exercising spacing. And her mom listened to the podcast and she came back and follow up and she said, well, that's me. I was told in high school that my mom said, well, you just have arthritis. I remember being 16, 17. Oh, you just have arthritis. And I just kept thinking, oh, that's just arthritis. I said, you don't get wear and tear arthritis at age 17. You might have been told that years ago. And that's what her mom was probably told. Oh, that's just arthritis. And well, that's a name, but it's not it's not the, the actual cause. And she likely had fibromyalgia like symptoms when she was younger. I just saw a patient of mine being on the positive side who I know some of the questions you sent ahead of time talking about adverse childhood events who I just saw and she's about 11 now. I saw mom first and then her daughter said, you have to come in. She's been struggling and she's still going through PTSD, getting therapy for that. But she did have coexisting RLS and ADHD and she's eating a plant-based diet. Once we got her where she could sleep better, 
She could focus better. She could start moving. Her pain lessened. She was able to eat healthier. And now she's actually able to enjoy life. And her score went from, you know, there's something called the widespread pain index and symptom severity score that we use for diagnosing, especially in adults, which the pediatric diagnosing of fibromyalgia is the old version of the adults, which isn't up to date when they do trigger point testing. But she went, you can have 19 areas in the body where you hurt from right jaw, right shoulder, upper and lower arms, upper, uh, lower back, neck, and uh, legs, 19 different pairs or areas. And she had went from a score of 16 down to one from January until now. Her fatigue was severe. Her chronic um, headaches were severe. Her brain fog was severe. She had daily headaches, painful periods. All of these were in the very severe level, and now they're down to the mild level. And does she still need help working with therapy, processing the trauma that she has had in her life? Sure. But she's moving in a much better direction. And her mom is, like you said earlier, very thankful and that she found me. And she, she's like, wow, Dr. Lenz, we were both struggling. We all were struggling. And actually, it started because her husband had seen me earlier and then said, I got my wife, I think has this fibro thing. And then I know, I know a friend. I have a, and that's actually where I suddenly have this. And then, well, that's my daughter. Oh, that's my niece. And part of the fear yeah. with the book and the podcast is I can only see so many people. So as I say, I want all the the pediatricians and psychiatrists and, and family practice doctors and nurse practitioners who are listening to the podcast to say, hey, there's a lot of more we do understand I think one of the things I heard when I was in pre-med by a mentor, he, he said, every seven years, half of what you learn changes. And then there's a new another one that says it takes about 17 years for a commonly accepted practice to be used routinely. And I would say, of course, most things that we do in pediatrics don't involve an expensive procedure. I think if it's an expensive procedure, that gets bumped up probably to or, or, or expensive medication. Those often get put into practice in much quicker than 17 years. But all of the understanding it takes like a generation it takes doctors and now teaching the residents coming through which i'm trying to do my part with teaching one resident at a time and hopefully get back to do a talk with the uh med peds but hopefully uh, their monthly meetings or whatever and and get a chance to share this and then with the podcast and the book to share this evidence-based approach yeah i I, I think, I mean, about like ACEs. I mean, the original ACEs study came out in 1998. And here we are in 2022, where it's kind of part of the language for physicians. And yet, you know, it's still not integral. And yet we know that it has all these association, associations. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. But also, there's this sort of and you can have trauma and pain. And at the bottom of all that, you can have hope that this can get better and that this sort of multi-pronged, multimodal, I know sometimes people benefit from, you know, other kinds of therapies like OT or PT, music therapy. For kids, it may be play therapy, hypnotherapy. I mean, there's all all sorts of, um, you know, equine therapy. And that, you know, so there's this kind of broad spectrum of things that we can do. I did want to ask you, as we kind of wind down, what about medication? What about medication? Because, you know, we're, we're often looking for that, you know? Sure. So 
when it comes to ADHD, most pediatricians, well, many, not all, I think it depends on your train. I, I've heard different surveys, about 50% of pediatricians feel comfortable diagnosing and managing ADHD all by themselves. I think it kind of varies from practice to practice. And that's less when you get into family practice, and it's even less when you get into internal medicine that's very low. But most people feel very comfortable, hopefully, in the peds world managing that. And then the things like that are are often in pediatrics that are off-label but are covered in adults, like talking about medications if they have gabapentin, if they have RLS, which has been studied in, even down neonates in the nursery for use. That's off-label. You know, if I always like to be thinking of iron deficiency as well, which sometimes can occur. But when I have a very strong family history of RLS, and when you start asking the questions, that's there. Uh, depending on the family, I may or may not do the blood draw, depending on the age and the trauma of getting blood drawn. But making sure there's no iron deficiency and then treating that there. And then there are medications that are approved in adults and looking at teenagers for like duloxetine effects or generic uh, effects or pregabalin, gabapentinoid type medication that can be used as supplement than the cyclobenzaprine, the nortriptyline, ambitriptyline. And all of the things I think when you're talking about with the patients is say, well, this hopefully will turn down the volume, maybe 20, 25%. When you're measuring IBS, you may say, okay, you're having less frequent bowel movements instead of three to four a day. Now you're having one or two and they're not quite as painful. And when and I encourage, as you many probably have had who are listening, doing that abdominal pain diary, where for a couple of weeks, write down, I like to say, when do you go to bed? When do you get up? And especially in teenagers, where the weekend weekday, I often say, hey, I want to do this experiment for two weeks. It's just for two weeks. And I'll say, I want you to get up every day. What time do you have to get up for school? I got to get up at six. Okay. I want you to get up every day at six. I want you to turn off your phone at seven or eight and just... See what happens. Ooh, good luck with that sleep. One. Well, I try it for two weeks. I say, do it for two weeks. And then they, then they go, well, well, why do you just say two weeks? I said, well, I know if I told you for the rest of your life, you would never do it. But if it's two weeks, anybody can do something for two weeks. And when your friends say, what's, what's going on? You're like, oh, I got this doctor. He's trying to do this experiment. All right, I'm going along with it and I'll see what happens. And I'll meet you for, co- I'll meet you for breakfast at seven in the morning, you know, and Again, good luck. That's the thing. But if you try it for two weeks and then you say, oh, how did you feel? Well, my headaches are better. My gut's better. What happened when you tried diet? So those are the medications that I typically would use in whether that's kids or adults. But I don't like to jump to that. I don't like to use that as the first thing. But if they do have ADHD, that's something that isn't going to get better with just a diet and just an exercise can reduce some of the symptoms. But if you have it, that's one of those and if you're so exhausted because you have untreated RLS until we can get some comfortable sleep and then maybe exercise is all you need, I think using activity counters are very helpful if it's not too distracting, but to kind of track their steps, tracking their sleep. There's, you know, again, these are got to have caution with the sleep cycle uh, or apps that track your sleep. And then you can say, sometimes you may find, I've had a couple of patients who said, apparently I didn't sleep. But I was in bed for eight hours. Well, they were kicking their legs and moving and tossing turn all, all night. And no wonder they were fatigued. Or they may see, holy cow, they went to bed at two in the morning, slept till 10 on Saturday. And so giving that information is an important, that consistency. And kind of when you look at migraines, as many may be familiar with, people who are on the central pain spectrum, they need regular 
more than other people. They need regular healthy meals. They need regular healthy exercise. They need regular uh, workloads and demands when it comes to schoolwork and consistency. They need that way more than most people. And seeing how when that gets off a little bit, it starts to spiral, right? They stay up too late on Friday night. And then with that, uh, going on kind of another tangent is too is they might start self-medicating as they get into later middle school and high school by using marijuana to sleep at night. And well, that made me made me wonder, maybe more so in the adult population. I think pediatricians are pretty leery of opioids, but I imagine in the adult population, you you know, that there are people that may have fallen into that. And I think that often it's in that teenager who might have gotten in a car accident. They got whiplash and then Mm -hmm. they got prescribed, you know, as you know, the classic story of some kind of opioid that turned out that led to a sad path going down to heroin addiction from well-meaning doctors. And I think we're all trying to recognize very limited duration. I don't use opioids for uh, chronic fibromyalgia pain. My look at what the literature shows is it actually makes the pain worse. And what the studies mm. are showing, but there's these are small studies that the naloxone, the reversal of heroin and uh, opioids actually are showing some improvement in some studies showing it actually helps. Now, this was in some adult studies. It's not, I have not really used it at all, but there, there are some in the mm-hmm. fiber world who have it, but it just actually supports that opioids actually cause more pain in the long term and are actually more harmful. And I don't think, I, I can't remember last time I saw a pediatric patient that came to me who was on opioids. I don't think many pediatricians uh, who aren't specializing in chronic pain would ever prescribe it. And I think most even chronic pain pediatric practitioners, uh, physicians are using that very rarely. I I don't think they're incorporating that at all. I don't think they want to get somebody on this and then pass it off to an adult doctor as well. Right. Well, I just wanted to kind of, I think, put a shout out there to the, you know, opioids is not recommended. And in what you're saying is that it may actually make things worse. And I think in some of the studies in, in terms of opioid prescribing, oftentimes and where I've seen it is um, dental procedures, wisdom teeth being removed, and then sort of those ER visits, you know, for car accident or something like that. Um, but I think the recommendations are even in those situations, very low dose and, you know, three days. Short duration. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. So that, you know, we don't want people in acute pain you know, to suffer. But on the other hand, these chronic pain syndromes don't benefit from that treatment. So, well, lots to think about. And I I think, I, I mean, the restless leg syndrome and growing pains, I've never heard that before. I think that's fascinating to kind of think about, is there, you know, how, how might I look at this differently? So I think you've raised a lot of questions for people to stop and think about, you know, evaluating this in, in a broader sense rather than just organ focused, because I think that's where we go, because, you know, a lot of times we're afraid, like, I'm going to miss something if I don't go down that path. So if you were going to leave us with just a couple of clinical pearls, what would you leave us with? Well, a lot of, hopefully, you've gotten a lot of pearls so far in the podcast. Read the book, listen to the podcast. No, 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 I'm just saying so far we covered a lot of 
that I think that the diary, the schedule, that history, I think that it's when you get sometime, I'm sure just happens to me. It happens to every doctor listening. They all of a sudden get hit sideways with a patient who comes in where suddenly it says a 15 minute visit that somehow got triaged as a 15 minute visit where you could probably spend 45 minutes squeezed in as an acute that isn't really an acute visit. It's a chronic visit. And this is a challenge because I want to cure everybody at the same time is to say, hey, there is a lot going on. We're going to get some labs. One of the things I'll say ahead of time is if I'm, you get a feel for this, and I'm sure Leah, you've had this as well, where you probably ahead of time go that the, the pre-test probability that I'm going to find something bad is very low. You can sense, and we might call this a very anxious patient and even an anxious parent. And recognizing like, oh, most, maybe most of these, maybe the parent and the child have the same struggle and that these tests I think are going to be normal, but I just want to make sure. So I'm expecting they're going to be normal, but I just want to make sure. So they aren't disappointed that they didn't find something, but what you have is real. I think what's happening is your nervous system is becoming hypersensitive. Now there's a lot more to cover. Now, I want to have you, and this might be, if you have the time, where I might on the schedule, if it's a big patient, you hardly had enough time to cover this, is like, I want you to write down your history going back, all of the symptoms you've had, any interventions. If you can write that down with your mom, depending on the age, write that down. And if you can, send it through the electronic medical record, or if you want to drop it off, and then I set a chance to review it ahead of time. And I'm going to look through things. In the meantime, can you just keep that sleep journal or the your uh, what you're eating exercise journal and write that down because that make that is part of this and them getting a re- chance to write down their story. One of the, re- the recent podcasts I've just done on chronic Lyme was that one of the things that the alternative medicine providers do is they'll spend an hour and just listen to their story. Well, and I don't agree with their con- their attribution that you have a hidden secret. Uh, bacteria that is evading the traditional medicine uh, in your body. But they at least sat down and said, I listened to your story. And wow, you're really going through a lot of struggles. There's a lot of things going on. And I think sometimes having a chance for the patient to write that down, like you'd want to hear my story, but I don't have enough time right now, but I want you to write it down. And you might need to get help depending on the age. Um, Most people with the chronic pain are probably getting a little bit older. And with the help. And that would be actually often therapeutic, just like taking that headache diary and the abdominal pain diary and recognizing, oh, there was a pattern. Well, when did you notice it? Well, the summer, I guess it wasn't as bad. Oh, I broke up with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Or you know what? I do think it did get worse when grandma died and mom was going back and forth to the hospital. And gosh, I guess it started nine months as one of my, Adam, who I'm going to be having uh, his story shared of a patient who has gotten better. He said, you know, looking back nine months before all this had started, I went through a huge high uh, emotional stress. And I, I think that played a huge role because he started as an adult recognizing, you know, there's a there's a psychological aspect. I don't want to say it's all in your head, but there is some no, of those but aspects, there's that, you know, because sure, that think, brain connect using words yeah, carefully yeah. because they might say, oh, it's all in your head. You're just imagining it, not imagining. But wow. I've had patients where, uh, in my book, I share a story of a guy who's every time his dad walked into the office of their family business, his body just tensed up. Oh, well, there's 
obviously this connection of how your body responds to things. Oh, so there is that component. That's interesting. And that validates there's that aspect. And you get to have that understanding. And as a doctor, that helps your history to say, wow, there are some things that are going on. And you might not even know. I interviewed Adam, who's a patient, and on the podcast, I'm like, oh, I didn't know that because we got a chance to sit down for an hour and a half. And I heard some of the things in your story I didn't even know. And sometimes you'll find out if it's like being a detective. You have to look for clues. And the patient themselves may not think, and being a little silly here, well, that nice old lady, she couldn't be the killer. She's just so sweet. Well, that has nothing to do with anything, but oh, wait, make sure we don't, taking that whole history, what's going on as best we can and tease things out. And that actually can be part of that therapeutic process is helping draw those connections together. And then it's exciting to see somebody who struggled to go, oh, that does make sense. So you're saying that sleep is important. Wow. I did that for two weeks and I have to admit, I only had one migraine. And you know what? When I stay up late and have pizza and I have a bunch of French fries and hamburgers and I don't eat well, um, and then I don't exercise for two days because I'm recovering and then I can't get out of bed on Monday. Oh, that's not really helpful, is it? I'm like, yeah, your friends might be able to do it, but you're one of the 10 kids who can't have that crazy lifestyle. Your body just can't handle that. And look at, you don't want to be like your mom when I say that jokingly, because many people go who are younger, they don't want to be when I say might be my age or younger, they go, oh, I don't want to end up like my mom. She's always was this hypochondriac. Oh, I hope I'm not. Well, if we can catch that. So you're not like grandma and grandma wishes. You know, I, I think one of the pearls is nobody ever wishes they could wait until they're 36 or 46 to figure it out. So if you can help that at an early age, you can have this impact that can have so much downstream help to prevent so many different struggles that they have. You you just and uh, so. Therein lies the beauty of pediatrics, right? Preventive medicine and and like you started out uh, saying, you know, that upstream, you know, if you re can recognize. I love the storytelling piece because that it's permission to tell the story, validation. And I always remember Vince Felitti, who authored the ACEs study, said, you know, the asking is in and of itself therapeutic. So the asking of the story, the asking for what happened to you it conveys that you're interested in, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I fully believe that what we do is about connecting with other human beings and in a meaningful way. Um, and you clearly listen to your patients and, and I appreciate, you know, that you're out there in the world doing, I mean, this is hard work, but you obviously love what you do and your patients know that. So um, as I started out, it must be a relief for them to see you and finally feel like there's there's something that can be done and that they could feel better. So thank you for everything that you do. Well, you're very welcome. And thanks for having me on the podcast. I think getting this word out there, I think hopefully as many pediatricians who are listening right now, are they're hopefully able to put into words or a deeper understanding of things they just didn't know how to express that there probably was some of this connection, but I didn't quite know because I never got trained. And hopefully they start to see, oh, there is hope. It takes more time. And that sometimes that's that challenge. And maybe they didn't want to go into internal medicine because all oh, these chronic problems and all these things don't get better. But that happens in kids. And it also is that also most mm -hmm. rewarding when you can help somebody who's been struggling and makes sense. And like you say, that validation of the story, 
added with a sprinkle of your nervous system processes pain and things differently. Oh, and let me share some of these studies, you know, and I talk about that in the book, some of the functional MRI studies showing blood flow differences and how, you know, the pressure sensors in the colon, putting pressure on the thumb with these uh, special testing and applying pressure and they'll report pain at half the threshold. Oh, your pain is real, but it's not causing tissue damage, but it feels exactly like somebody whose thumb or colon is being injured. It's the exact same sensation. But the alarm, which is there to protect us, is sometimes not correct. And the kind of that another quick analogy with comparison, it's like an engine light. Sometimes the engine light is going off and it means that their engine's injured. But sometimes it's just a sensor that isn't sensing properly. And you have a sensor yes. that doesn't quite sense properly. And sometimes you're getting the signal and that signal's real. But it doesn't mean that there's real. Yeah, no. I, I like that analogy. It, it makes sense. It sort of like makes me think too of like the smoke alarm that's going off because you're cooking it and it picked up the smoke, but it's not a fire. So, yeah. um, well, I think there's so much more that we could talk about with this. And and clearly for people that want more, tune into the podcast um, and I'll make sure I put in links and the links to your book. And Again, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much. All right. Take care and have a great rest of the day. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Listening to Dr. Lenz, I am uplifted by the possibility that there is hope and strategies for managing patients with chronic pain conditions. So here's my takeaways. Number one, thank you, of course, for joining the podcast and I always appreciate your listenership. Number two, what drew Dr. Lentz into the field was the belief that chronic pain was not hypochondriasis, but instead real pain. Number three, for clinicians, chronic pain patients may be the least favorite. I know we all see a patient on our list and think, oh no, what am I going to do? I've exhausted all my avenues of testing with no answers, and the patient still has pain. Number four, for patients, validation that their pain is real is a relief and may open the door to functional improvement. Number five, these syndromes present with pain and often fatigue and with fibromyalgia, even brain fog. Many times these symptoms begin in kids. Number six, early intervention can prevent a lifetime of misery. Number seven, trauma and ACEs may be highly correlated with pain conditions. So again, in taking a history, it's important that we ask about trauma. Number eight, so how do you work up a patient? Take a history. Ask for the pain story. What has been tried? What has been evaluated already? What was going on when the pain occurred? When was it better? Number nine, take a very thorough family history. Chronic pain syndromes are often familial. Chronic migraines, irritable bowel syndrome, cyclic vomiting and abdominal migraines, restless leg syndrome, fibromyalgia. Number 10, do a complete and thorough physical exam. And I do mean this, hands-on exam, top to toe, and, you know, really get the patient in a gown. This is so important. Number 11, Consider some basic labs based on the presentation, for example, CBC, complete blood panel, 
sed rate, CRP, iron level, and possibly a celiac panel if there's abdominal complaints. Number 12, once you have ruled out the bad stuff, focus on education. This is incredibly important. Explain the brain-body connection. It is not all in your head, but it is all in your body. This is a hypersensitive neurologic system that is working over time. Number 13, offer lifestyle experiments to the patient. Changes in sleep, diet, activity, stress, mindfulness, and introduce one change at a time to test the impact and look for improved function. Number 14, look for and treat comorbidities such as ADHD, anxiety, and depression. Some medications such as duloxetine and tricyclics have been used for chronic pain. Consider iron supplementation may be helpful if there is an iron deficiency and restless leg syndrome or other sleep difficulties. Number 15, avoid opioids. They may make the condition worse. And of course, there's the risk of substance use disorder. If acute symptoms occur with pain, for example, after surgery, consider only short-term treatment. And again, think about this very carefully. And it may be important to work with our surgical colleagues and dentists too. Number 16, make time for these patients. And you may need several appointments. Help the patient with expectations. These conditions have often been going on for a long time, and they may take a while to untangle the history. Number 17, improved function may not equal complete cessation of pain, but incremental improvements instead. And so rating scales over time are helpful to help the patient see that there is actually real improvement. Number 18, Dr. Lenz's book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, and his podcast are both out there, and the links are in the show notes as well. And number 19, at the end of the day, listen to the story, spend time educating, offer hope, and offer strategies. Thank you so much for listening, and I know that these are patients that we often struggle with, and we really want to help offer relief, but sometimes it just doesn't seem possible. I think Dr. Lentz really offers up a strategy for approaching chronic pain syndromes in a way that may actually improve lives. So I hope that you'll be able to um, use some of these strategies in your practice. Thank you as always for listening, and I would love to hear your feedback As far as other upcoming episodes, I have a lot on tap, but I'm always interested in what you want to hear about. So DM me at Pediatric Meltdown on Instagram and Leah Gugino on Twitter. Thanks so much and look forward to you joining me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much and I hope you will join me next week.